This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 130, about The Punisher, season 1, episode 9, Front Towards Enemy. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. This is Derek from Defenders TV Podcast, and we're on episode 130 of our podcast, talking about The Punisher, season one, episode nine, Front Towards Enemy. Hello there, fellow Defenders, and Merry New Year. I hope it is fun and exciting for you all. This is your other host, John, and welcome back to Defenders TV Podcast in 2018, Mm -hmm. our first episode where we put our front towards the enemy. Yeah, welcome back. Happy New Year. Hope you had a good uh, a good break over Christmas. Uh, we didn't get much of a break from the podcast. We had uh, we still have our one out every week. Um, unfortunately, Chris is still on his break from podcasting at the moment. He's still in South Africa. He'll be away yeah. for a couple more weeks, uh, but we'll definitely be back for our finale episode for the Punisher. In military terms, he is missing in action. Although we know where he is. Yeah, but do we really? <laughs> he keeps putting up beautiful photographs across the ocean. Mm-hmm. But alas, we don't know whether it's just all in our minds. It may not be reality. We have watched too much Black Mirror uh, over the Christmas period, where reality and virtual reality get blurred. And <laughs> he is a techie, so... Yeah, I was wondering where you're going with that. Um, yes, so unfortunately it is just myself and John, but we'll keep you entertained, hopefully, for the rest of this podcast, uh, all about episode 9 uh, of The Punisher. And if you haven't yet joined us over on a Facebook group, come join us at facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV Podcast. Yes, and please share the love in 2018. Let's make this a good year. Uh, please head on over and subscribe to the podcast. Raters, reviewers on any of your favorite podcasts. You can head over to iTunes or should I say Apple Podcasts over at DefendersTVPodcast.com forward slash iTunes. We're also available on Google Play and just search Defenders TV Podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And finally, if you want to join us over on Twitter, you can get us at DefenderCast. We just recently put up our top points of 2017, our top Marvel moments of 2017. Uh, we started as an idea of doing top five points, but ended off with about 25, I think, from yeah. last year. Big year for Marvel. Loads of movies out. Many, many Marvel Netflix shows. We had three of them last year. Uh, and we're coming up on a big year again this year with uh, Infinity War. We've got Black Panther. We've got Jessica Jones coming up. The rest of the Punisher for us coming. Uh, and loads more to come, probably. I think I think uh, Luke Cage season two as well. Yes, and for the Marvel moments of 2017, a very popular tweet was the coming together of the Defenders, where all four of our heroes come on and get together to fight the evil hand. Not too much love shown for Thor Ragnarok so mm-hmm. far, other than from myself. Uh, not too many retweets or I heart Thor Ragnaroks. Um, <laughs> but there's still time, so please uh, head on over to our Twitter feed at DefendersCast. And of course, maybe share your moments uh, or your marvellous Marvel moments of 2017 as well. I think it's just because Thor Ragnarok is the most recent. I think that's all it was. It could so, be, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But I think with that... Let's get on with our war journal for Punisher 
Episode 9, Front Towards Enemy. Uh, Derek, what are some of the episode details? Uh, yeah, this episode was written by Angela Lamana. It's uh, the first time writing an episode for The Punisher, but she was story editor on the whole season, so she has been involved all the way through this season. She also wrote the penultimate episode of the wonderful TV show Hannibal. The Number of the Beast is 666 was the episode, and John, you reviewed that over on TV Podcast Industries when you were doing your coverage of Season 3 of Hannibal. I did. I loved that show uh, in the same way that I love food as well, um, just not items of people's anatomy. No, no, but they are fascinating and really, really good discussions about those episodes. I wish we'd been able to get back to do the other two seasons of that show. Definitely. When I saw that this was being both written and directed by people who uh, were involved with Hannibal, I got very excited. That was a class, class show, just like this one is turning out to be as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as Jordan mentioned, this episode was directed by Mark Jobs, who directed an episode of Hannibal Aperitivo. I believe you also covered that one uh, on your coverage as well. He did also direct two solo outings for The Defenders before. He did an episode of Daredevil, Season 2, Episode 3, which was New York's Finest. And he did Luke Cage, Season 1, Episode 5, just to get a rep. So great to have him back on this episode. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode? Sure. As Madani continues to blame herself for Stein's death... Lewis executes a series of bombings throughout New York City, witnessed by Frank and Micro. As the terrorist alert rises in New York, Lewis sends Paige a letter, believing she will side with his cause as she had with Castle. When she doesn't, he contacts Paige as she participates in an on-air debate between herself and pro-gun control Senator Ori, and threatens her life and the lives of those at the Bulletin. He hangs up after he issues his warning, Sic Semper Tyrannis, that is recognised by both Castle and Curtis, reciting his unit's Latin phrase, thus always to tyrants. Curtis immediately goes looking for Lewis, ending up at O'Connor's house, where he finds Lewis's bomb-making supplies and O'Connor's decaying corpse, only for Wilson to overpower him and tie him to a chair with a claymore mine strapped to his chest with front towards enemy. As Castle waits outside Lewis's home, Michael tracks his cell phone signal to O'Connor's address, where Frank finds Curtis and saves his life after convincing Lewis to disarm the bomb. Castle proceeds to escape from the police after Lewis calls in the police to aid his escape and keep Frank at arm's length. Meanwhile, in a bar, Madani summons Dutch courage in anticipation for Stein's funeral, where she hopes to make a grand gesture in his memory. As she gets up to go, Lieberman introduces himself to her at the bar and not only reveals Rawlins' name to her, but also his work with Castle. Just as a police car dashcam footage on the news captures Frank's image escaping the scene of a bomb factory and raising his public profile and continued existence. Yep, Frank is in the wind and is now... Absolutely um, captured on camera. Yeah, he's back alive for the world to, to see. I think it was quite interesting seeing the comparatives that they showed as uh, as Frank was shown on screen on the dashboard cam compared to him standing in front of the uh, the American flag covered in blood, which was the image from Daredevil season two. Um, it's quite interesting to think that he's been off grid now for that long. It's it's been such a long time since Daredevil season two. Uh, quite cool to put those together. Yeah, definitely. Um, but on with our top five war journal points. Our first one, Madani wants to make a statement. She wants to make this grand gesture, as her mother says. 
to the men and women of Homeland Security who are going to be attending his funeral, uh, all to do with her action and Sam's action with regards to Kandahar, that this is still going. Um, I really thought this was kind of interesting, um, that she, you know, talks to her mom about this, that she really wants to just let everything she knows flies so that then everyone knows, the press and her colleagues, um, yeah. and really then they will have to deal with it. They'll be forced to deal with it by the press. I thought this was really, really interesting. Yeah, it feels like a bit of an odd one. They don't. It doesn't seem like they have enough information to go to the press about it. So I'm trying to work out what is it that her speech is supposed to be saying at, at Sam Stein's funeral. Um, she's been spending a couple of days in bed trying to get over this, trying, doesn't want to go back to work, um, trying to be encouraged out of it by her mother. And then, and then she talks about speaking at Sam's funeral and revealing the information she does have, which is that there is someone on the inside she doesn't know at the beginning of the episode who that is so i'm trying to work out what it is that she would be saying is she saying that the department of homeland security is corrupt is she saying that the government's corrupt uh, how would this be picked up what is it that she would be telling the press at the funeral yeah i think as uh farah madani her mother calls her out by asking you know do you just want to take this opportunity to end your career you know she's really trying to make madani work through this in her moments of grief mm-hmm. you know she's been around the bed just really kind of moping and grieving for sam stein yeah, and we do see her try to turn to Billy Russo for sex again, trying to encourage herself out of this situation, trying to feel something good after the death of Sam Stein. Is it just me or is it even more creepy now when Billy Russo walks into the room to her, knowing that she's mourning the loss of her, of her partner? And this is the person that killed them. Like, you know, this is a really difficult kind of scenes for me to watch now. Yeah, there were a few moments though when, you know, she goes, how would you know you weren't the, mm. um, you know, he talks about the knife, that it's Sam Stein's fault. You know, he was the one with the gun. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the interesting thing here as well is that, um, Madani does let slip that it was a trap and that, you know, she was absolutely aiming to draw out the people involved here. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're left with that really interesting image of, uh, Madani leaving the room. It still looks like a hotel bedroom. It really does not look like an apartment bedroom. Yeah. But it, it, you know, shows her leaving her apartment bedroom with Billy Russell really contemplating what she's just said. And you're kind of thinking, you know, what is this guy going to do? You know, he is absolutely just the most distasteful human being really and portrayed so creepily calm by ben barnes it it, it, he really is and i mean it's a really tense and kind of exciting thrill uh during those moments really to see you know how he takes this all on board you know he is almost this silent operative Definitely. He goes totally off grid with regards to anything he does with Rawlins. You know, so you just wonder, he's still hidden. He's still in the shadows. No one knows about him. And I was just thinking, even with Micro's, um, all his surveillance, all his data feeds, he still hasn't even spotted that there is this other person in the form of Billy Russo involved yeah, yeah. in the Kandahar drug running. Um, and even the fact that he was doing that under Frank's nose in Kandahar at the time. I mean, this guy really is a fantastic 
covert undercover operative yeah and um, he really um doesn't draw suspicion at all um and i, I think that's what makes uh, him as a character just so fascinating yeah yeah definitely one of the other things i did like about the scene was having sure agadashalu back as um as madani's uh, mother really good to see her back in the show it's one of the things that's re- working really well for me in the punisher is they have a bigger cast it feels like than the other netflix shows have had so it's kind of feeling a bit more like a city um more like something that's taken place in a bigger situation than things like iron fist for example which had much of a focus on the Meachams, which were just three members of one family, whereas this seems like there's many more players involved in this particular uh, show. So seeing some of these characters coming in for one or two episodes here and there, things like um, Lewis's father came in for two episodes, three episodes. Um, we have uh, Rafi, isn't it? Her boss who comes in, Madonna's boss who comes in for a couple of episodes here and there as well. Yeah, he was in again t- uh, in this episode. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like her sponsor. He's almost kind of advocated her through her career yeah uh, and is really being protective of her career as well and i think uh, again it's just another nice little piece of her immediate um i suppose professional and private family which is so good and yeah. and you start to get a sense or you start to get those questions come back which is you know who is Rafi? All we know is that he's kind of like has been her boss. You know, is he in some ways involved in this? Because she doesn't open up to him mm-hmm. uh, about any of that. You know, he's kind of just really asking the question, what is going on? And maybe it's as simple as that. But every so often, you know, these these new people, they just disrupt the the, the waves and the flow, which get you asking questions, really brings a little bit of intrigue. It, it's really, really good, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly to see Shora Aga Dashalu back is really, really good. Yeah. Um, I love, uh, this lady. I think she's so good. Um, such an interesting actress, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Such an interesting voice as well. Great to see her on the show. Right. Two episodes ago, we were left with Lewis in his house about to start making bombs. We finally see his plan in this episode. So our war journal point number two is Lewis unveils his plan. Very interesting. This is partly inspired by what we thought. We didn't really know exactly who was going to go after with this bomb. He definitely has a bigger plan than I thought he had. Um, I think one of our theories was that he was going to be going after the courthouse where the teacher had been arrested and, and brought in for carrying a weapon. That seems to be what's inspiring him, but he's definitely doing something much bigger with it than I thought. Yeah, I mean, here, I think we really have Lewis turn. I think, I think this is really interesting because he, what, he's been gone for a couple of episodes. We last saw him with a pressure cooker about to start, uh, constructing his homemade bomb. Mm-hmm. And then we see the, a top, um, one of the skyscrapers, Frank and Micro. They're doing surveillance on Madani, uh, and then all of a sudden you get the explosion down at street level. Mm. Um, and, you know, he blows up three buildings. So he has got grand ambitions here. And I mean, it's really interesting, I think, for this character, Lewis. You know, we're kind of going, how is he going to kind of come into contact with the Punisher? Yeah. Or is he even? I think here we see how he's going to come into contact. You know, he sends his letter to Karen, really telling her that he has lost his faith in the apparatus of the state, mm-hmm. that they are actually subverting the constitution that provides the freedom, the justice, and the equality 
that he believes is afforded to Americans through that large and great document, the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So he's really going after, what, about three buildings here, including the ATF building, which I can't remember what that stands for. Yeah, it's alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, if I'm not mistaken, um, are the three big ones. So obviously they were the ones that have the firearm laws in the US. So uh, a, a very specific target there among the other targets that he's, that he's trying to take out as well. But I think here we really see him completely uh, unhinged in, in what he's doing. Um, you know, he, he sees everyone as a threat. He does also try and identify people that are on his side or who he thinks is on his side. And here we have him writing to Karen Page, thinking that she will because of her involvement with Frank Castle. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, we do get a sense here that Lewis is... I'm not saying inspired by Frank Castle, but has him as a mentor in, in the sense of doing things that um he felt the state wasn't able to achieve. Yeah, there's certainly a kinship there in, in, yeah. his, in his mind. Anyway. In, absolutely. But Karen doesn't. And we see here, you know, Six Emperor Tyrannus, his unit's Latin phrase, which translates as thus always to tyrants, i.e. you're always going to get it. Here are we, you know the Marines, the the Corps, going after um, tyrants. And I, I think, you know, for me, I suppose this is the moment where he suddenly becomes an unsympathetic character right. in many respects. I mean, it's quite abrupt, really. I mean, you see him struggling, and I suppose you kind of know that it's only going to go one way, but there's still that moment of you thinking, well, is Curtis going to be able to, like, you know, better out of him is he really going to be able to like persuade him to change you know even the conversations that his father's had in the past but you suddenly realize that you know this is a guy still at war still in a fight and now that target has become um the federal state in in, in america really and anyone that supports them as well he's he's very strong about the fact that if karen goes against him if she doesn't do what he asks for and give him the information that he wants and do what he says which is to print his entire letter in the paper with her support that the members of the bulletin are going to be are going to be killed you know they're going to become another target because he's no longer willing to take the people that support the things that he doesn't want and doesn't believe in which is what, as you say, this is where the turn has totally come for Lewis, uh, this character that has been very sympathetic because we all understand the pain and pressure that must be there for someone that comes back from war. Um, but he never accepted any help from anybody. And now he feels like he's, he's doing the righteous thing, which is very difficult to take from any character. Um, we struggle with it before with the Punisher before, you know, Punisher had to do three or four monologues on top of a roof with Daredevil for you to get behind the idea that he doesn't go after the innocents at all. There's no such thing as collateral damage to Frank Castle. Every person that he targets is deserving of the punishment that he doles out. And yet the interesting thing here is that you really get that sense of, uh, Lewis, being that story arc within the Punisher that is reflective, you know, it mirrors Absolutely. the motives of Frank Castle yeah. that he feels disempowered and he needs to carve out justice for himself. You know, the motives he sees are very similar with Frank Castle. I presume that's why he sends the letter to Karen Page, but he is 
I mean, this is going to sound almost a bit weird in that, I was going to say, more extreme than Frank, because, yeah, there will be collateral damage. Mm -hmm. His code is only about fighting to destruction, regardless of the collateral damage. And so that's where it's slightly, you know, departs from Frank, I think, to an extent. This is what makes Lewis a villain. Absolutely. But I do love the fact that the mirror is held up here between Lewis, between Frank, in terms of being veterans, in terms of being um, people who have had um, what they consider injustice done to them uh, and how that has spiraled. And in many respects, even though it departs, Lewis departs from Frank, they're still going in roughly the same direction. To, to some extent, I think as well, you know, uh, and I, I think that's a really interesting use of this character to hold that mirror up to Frank and really see that whilst there's a certain similarity of, of motivation based on injustice or the feeling of, the, of that in terms of, of Lewis, you know, he is going after effectively society. He believes that the society is wrong. Frank believes that individuals within society, there are rotten eggs, there are good eggs in that sense. It's almost like Frank's is more targeted revenge compared to to what Lewis is ultimately trying to achieve with his plan of blowing up buildings and the promise of more to come. Yeah, this kind of just leads us into our next point as well, the Lewis, Frank and Curtis standoff. Because that's really what the discussion is all about in this episode. It's all about whether there is a difference between Lewis and Frank. Um, can Curtis see the difference between the two of them? Curtis has supported Frank in what he's done the whole way through. And he's the first person that responds to the situation with Lewis. He's the one that finds Lewis, uh, for example. He knows where he is. Um, and he steps in and tries to save Lewis one last time. One of the interesting things in the episode, after the bombs happen... We find out in just a news story in the background, we find out that he's, that 14 people are murdered in these bombs. That's a death toll. It's quite interesting to see that they kind of brush that into the background a bit so they can still have that conversation with Lewis. But it's 14 innocent people that he's murdered, effectively, by planting these bombs and taking this stance that he is against the government and a war has begun that he's going to lead without any backup, without anybody else on his side. He's going to lead a war against the government. This is a huge choice for this character and again this is what turns him into the villain not our hero frank where frank is trying to solve the crimes that the police won't or can't solve because the police because of police corruption it's a very different situation between the two of them and you can see frank frank's blood boil the more lewis compares himself to him yeah i mean it's interesting you say that it's really interesting that you know the letter sent to karen it's almost slightly analogous to um, you know, the pinning up of notices, um, on the Declaration of Independence during the American War of Independence a- against the British. I mean, to some extent, um, you know, and it, it's kind of interesting. It's like, when does something become a romanticized rebellion? When does something become an act of terrorism? Do you know what I mean? It's really interesting, I find. It's certainly an interesting discussion, definitely. Um, for me, it's usually if there's a form of a movement behind the person if there is a movement that has been started rather than a guy going into his basement and building a bomb out of a pressure cooker and putting it into the ATF building and blowing it up he doesn't have anybody behind him even the one person that supported him which was O'Connor he murdered him in cold blood and left his body rotting while he built these bombs to blow up buildings like there's 
there's no justification here that this character is anything but a terrorist for me. But you're absolutely right, John. This is what I love about the episode. These conversations that are happening, they, they do give you an opportunity to air all sides of the argument and make those kind of uh, connections so that you can really see the difference throughout the season so far. These nine episodes, definitely, they're really trying to set up the Punisher apart from what we saw from him in daredevil as just being a vigilante with a possible terrorist side to him um they're trying to make sure that we we know at the end of this season coming out of it that there is a justification for what frank does and it's different from anybody who takes up arms to to kill anybody that's against them no i mean it, it is it's it's really interesting the way the show is exploring the motivations the rights or wrongs of it uh, the comparisons that you could assign like i was saying about you know Declaration of Independence, a declaration of war, a mm-hmm. declaration to Karen Page of rising up against the state. I mean, okay, there's different contexts there, but I mean, it, it's really interesting to see these kind of markers that are placed and being able to really have that discussion as to, is it the same as the American War of Independence? As I've kind of loosely brought that comparison. And it's all about perspective it comes down to. You know, mm-hmm. one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And, you know, in, in the context of maybe um current American politics, you say he's acting alone. Maybe a lot of people have those ideas rightly or wrongly do you know what what i mean is is that um i think the writers here are really tapping into a a vein of context within not just america i think probably globally which is really interesting to see uh, and really interesting seeing it brought into a show like the punisher I I, i mean you know Okay, I don't want to overblow the comparisons by any stretch of the imagination, but it is kind of interesting that these kind of discussions, thoughts, comparisons, markers are evident here. It is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm also definitely seeing some comparisons to the Unabomber as well um, and what happened happened with him. Uh, Again, this is standalone kid in his basement building bombs to, to blow up uh, different buildings and saying that he doesn't accept there are innocents uh, in this war that he has started. Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how far this kid has come from coming home from the war, not being able to sleep in his own bed, not getting any support, and then just one little act, which was a teacher who brought a gun to class, which we talked about before being completely unacceptable in our society. That one little act where a justifiable court case is happening and he's now bombing and killing people. You know, it's it's a, it's a really interesting story. You can see Frank's blood boil, as I said. Definitely. Firstly, with the comparisons to Frank, but also early on when he's trying to discover who it is that's done this. And he just hears it's a bomber. The minute he hears that it's a bomber, he's going, this is absolutely the worst kind of person. You know, it, it's the idea that it's not somebody that's going out with a gun, standing face to face with his enemy and taking that enemy out is just abhorrent to Frank. That idea, he even says to, says to Lewis in their conversation, um, come and face me like a man, stand in front of me. Every single person I killed, I stood in front of. Not everyone. We did see a few. There was about a thousand yards between him and, <laughs> and, yeah, and Frank. Absolutely. Uh, but the guy knew he was coming. <laughs> I suppose is the is the big difference, um, but yeah, there's definitely some some really interesting points for discussion here. But of course, then there's the um, the third person in this, which is Curtis as well, who, as you say, has tried to talk uh, Lewis down. But I mean, again, we see here that Lewis again just sees him as 
the enemy, you know, mm-hmm. beats him to near death with his own uh, leg and then ties him to a claymore. You know, it's really just like the height of extremism uh, that he, he's going through. And I mean, it's really difficult to see because uh, the, the actor who plays um, Lewis is so good here. And I must say, I think with the Lewis, Frank and Curtis standoff there, where Curtis is strapped down in the kitchen, mm-hmm. you have... Lewis has come to the window. He's really asking Frank almost to come with him to some extent here. You know, be a part of it. Yeah, but, yeah. But as you say, Frank does not see the similarity uh, of himself with Lewis at all. Yeah. Um, you know, but makes the plea to his sense of honor coming from the military that at least give me the wire here that I should cut, you know, so that I can save this guy's life. I really enjoyed that moment where you really get illuminated um, as as the audience about Frank and Curtis's uh, relationship here. And I thought that was really, really good to see because, okay, we knew they had been involved together and somehow, but then Frank goes through the story uh, of him really not being the, the point man that he should have been because the lady carrying the bomb in Afghanistan, where Curtis was already dealing with an IUD, slips through the cordon that supposedly should have been protecting Curtis because she appeared to be or was pregnant. Um, And her explosion kills the the person that Curtis is trying to help and rips Curtis's leg off. Um, And, you know, you see Curtis here, it's not your fault. You know, you really see that that pressure, uh, that responsibility that Frank still holds for the situation that Curtis finds himself in. And mm-hmm. I thought that was, in, you know, in amongst all of this, Curtis being strapped to a chair with a bomb, with Lewis going absolutely crazy. You know, I thought this was a real kind of moment of of pure contrast, which was really good, yeah. I think, here. I think of all the Marvel scenes that have been released this year, we talked about it earlier on, are, are top Marvel moments of 2017. This has to be one of them. This scene between these all three of these actors are just on, on absolute top of their game. The moment where Curtis is talking about, you know, the fact that he just got beaten by a, a dumb kid. If it was in his in his prime, he would have been able to rip that kid apart. You know, you can see a character like Curtis, who's always been a really positive character and really upbeat character. He's mentioned it a few times that he does have underlying all of that. He does have moments of uh, of weakness, like everybody else does, but. To see that moment where he's truly beaten inside as well as well as physically is really tough to watch. And then John Bernthal in, in this scene again explaining another horrible moment that happened to him in his life. Another time he let a friend down, um, is just really difficult to watch. And then as we, as we've been saying all season, Lewis has been fantastic and really, really interesting to watch. Tough to watch, but really interesting to watch. So these three together is a perfect scene for me. It's one of the best scenes that Marvel have put together. Definitely. I think another great scene, or at least talking point, we were wondering about this, and I think it's our fourth war journal point, is the guns versus no guns debate. Yeah. We wondered if they were going to raise it, and they raised it live on air uh, with Karen and the pro-gun control Senator Ori. This was fascinating, actually. Um, don't forget the DJ. Don't don't oh, and, ever forget of course, that DJ. And there was the DJ <laughs> as well. Because yes. he won't let you forget him for the minute 
minute he gets on screen, he is looking to make sure that his voice is heard, just like any good shock jock on the radio. You know, he's pushing each side to say things they may not normally have said. That's That seems to be his job. Um, and he is the third point of the argument, moving back and forth to rile up both of the two people who are there to talk specifically about it. Uh, it's interesting, obviously, the reason why Karen's there is because she is seen as a, as a supporter of the Punisher when he was doing his thing in New York, I suppose, and she was writing the articles about it. She obviously received the letter from from Lewis as well, so she's seen on one side of the argument. And then Senator Ori is kind of using it to promote his side of the argument, which is an anti-gun lobby. So some really interesting sides to this argument. And I was really shocked when I saw this first that, uh, that they were taking it so head-on on this show. They're definitely not avoiding having this discussion. No, not at all. Um, and it, it's really interesting. I mean, it, it's funny, actually. I think from the, the point of view of, of Lewis and Frank, and I think then again here with, with Karen, I don't know whether it's just me, but I feel as though Karen speaks on shifting sands. And maybe that's what any good journalist needs to do. Um, you know, in, in the sense that, you know, there is that moment in this interview where they're talking about the letter from Lewis, which she has posted into the bulletin with a response, which is absolutely complete in refusing the arguments that Lewis puts out. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you do get that sense from Karen is that should she then really support Frank? I think it's a difference in scale, I think, to be honest, and it's a difficult one. But then as well... You would, or I feel that Karen would intuitively be no guns, but then she used the gun to kill Wesley to protect herself. Mm -hmm. And had it not been for that gun, as she says in this interview and in this radio show, if she didn't have the gun to hand, she would be dead. That's an absolute certainty of that moment in, in Daredevil season one. So Yeah, but um, she was speaking in the third person as well. She was saying that, you know, of course. those moments were because you had a gun, you could protect yourself and you're still alive. Absolutely. It is almost our Easter egg for the episode. So if you didn't watch Daredevil season one, that's what <laughs> happened. It, it was Karen had a moment where she was faced with her biggest enemy, effectively, who had a gun pointed at her and was going to kill her. If she didn't have that gun to hand she wouldn't have killed him and we wouldn't have Karen in the show now. So um, so while she is speaking in the third person, we as our audience who've been watching it all the way through now know that, that she's talking very specifically from an experience she had. And I think that's why she gets so riled up with, with Senator Rory, who is an absolutely no-guns person. His, his concept is to get rid of all guns, less guns, less crime. No guns, no crime is kind of his attitude, which is definitely not Karen's. Uh, it feels like she's she's obviously supported Frank all the way through after having a conversation or two with him. And again, if she had no gun available to her, the people that did, who may have gotten them illegally, then they would have killed her is, is kind of her concept. And I think it's really interesting that we then get that dichotomy with Senator Ori that even though he is very much reduce guns, limit guns, pro-gun control, he needs... The, the guns of Billy Russo's anvil in order to protect himself advocating a pro-gun control stance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's even pointed out by the DJ at, at a moment during that interview, obnoxious though he is, he does have a very good point. He's effectively saying, I don't really know why Senator Ari is sitting here across from me saying we need less guns, this kind of stuff wouldn't happen if we had less guns. When there were zero guns involved in this situation, this, w- w- this bomb 
that went off, or these three bombs that went off, were homemade. They had nothing to do with guns, and they killed 14 people. So even if you got rid of all the guns in America, this would have still happened is the point. So it feels like what they're trying to say is about this character of Senator Ory, because he does look pretty slimy as well. There's something very House of Cards about him. Yeah. And being a, being a, a pro-gun control kind of person like I am, it's quite difficult to watch someone like that there. And effectively what they're saying is, don't use a platform. Don't use every platform to forward your agenda. Whether yeah. you feel your agenda's right or wrong, that you don't have to use every single opportunity to forward that agenda on everybody else because you may not be talking to the right audience. Uh, and that may hurt hurt your campaign. It may hurt what you're trying to promote as well. Yeah, completely. And I, I do think he is not the best advertisement for pro-gun control. He does seem slightly shifty, and, mm-hmm. and certainly that becomes even more so when he hires Billy Russo's. But I, I think as well... Um, the interesting thing that didn't really necessarily come out here is that because you're pro-gun control, that doesn't mean to say that there are necessarily no guns. Mm-hmm. It, it's to say that they are rigorously controlled. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that and that will always be the the pro-gun control lobby's idea of it, and the the pro-gun lobby will always think that that's saying taking away my guns. Um, it's it's a really difficult conversation to have, and it's a great that they faced it head on. It was just really interesting to me that you have someone like Karen who's telling Daredevil over and over again, you can't go out in the streets and, and protect everybody like a vigilante, leave it to the police. She tells Frank in this episode, leave it to the police. You are here at this moment, leave it to the cops. They are the ones trained. She's on a radio show here, and she's saying... If I didn't have that gun in my hand, when a gun was pointed at my face, I'd be dead right now. So she's speaking from personal experience about it. You've got the DJ who's saying, don't use my show to promote your agenda. That's not what the show's for to Senator Ari. And you've got Senator Ari saying, take guns out of the hands of everybody and we wouldn't have incidents like this when there would be incidents like this without guns. So all of them speaking in different ways about the same topic and all of them have a very different opinion about what would have happened and what could have happened. And particularly Senator Ori and Karen have quite contradictory stances yes. as well. Yeah. They're not consistent. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it's really infuriating to see that, I, I think. It, it really is. Um, but it and, feels like the show is trying to start the conversation rather than give the answer. And absolutely. I think that's a good thing. And yeah. the, the, to, be, to be fair for the show, so far it's done a great job of giving more information about it than I've probably heard talked about on tv for for a very long time um i do i do think the cut from that interview to the next time you see senator Ori taking donations to his campaign i don't know it just felt really off for me it felt it felt really odd to have this character it feels like he's just trying to make money out of the out of the anti-gun lobby uh it seems to be the way that that they're setting the character up so we'll see what happens we'll see if billy russo's team and anvil um are able to deal with Lewis, if he does attack the senator in future, whether they're able to deal with him in, in a humane way, as they say, or whether there will be guns firing around uh, around Senator Rory, ending his chances in the House of Cards. Well, that's true. <laughs> I wonder if, mad theory here, that mm-hmm. Lewis does try and attack Senator Rory, mm-hmm. that he gets past the Anvil Guards in that sense, but Billy Russo is around... And uses, cause they have come head to head previously. They certainly have. Um, and that Billy uses his, um, Assassin's Creed knife. And there is then, Madani sees the parallel of 
the, the stab pattern, the stab wound with steins. Maybe, maybe. I just wonder if, would that be the thing, something so innocuous, but it explodes Russo into the open? Maybe. Yeah. Possibly. Just a little theory. Yeah. I'm just wondering. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. No, um, me neither. Speaking, until the fat lady sings. <laughs> speaking of Badani, uh, let's go on to our, our final war journal note for this episode. Um, micro reaching out to Madani. Uh, as Frank gets discovered. So we have that moment earlier on in the episode where where Micro tells Frank to go after the people that he loves and take care of the people he loves. First thing about that point, we have a very specific piece of clarification here from Frank that he now feels that Karen Page has taken the place of his wife, almost. He's saying to Micro, if your wife was in danger, what would you do? And Micro goes, but she's not your wife, Frank. Karen is not your wife. Why are you going after her and protecting her? And with that conversation comes another shift in this relationship between Micro and Frank. He's starting to not believe Frank so much. He's now going to go and take matters into his own hands and go to Madani because of this kind of moment where he realizes Frank's not going to stop when he takes care, when he took care of all of the people that caused the situation. He's now going to go out and take out Lewis, this bomber that he's discovered because he now threatens somebody else in Frank's life. Yeah. And again, it's another good reflection from Lewis's storyline that disrupts people's thoughts about what Frank is, whether it's Karen or whether it's Micro. But I I, I love this scene of Micro reaching out to Madani in the bar where she's getting a little tanked and ready for the funeral so Mm -hmm. that she can, she can sort of get herself through it. Um, and I, I think, you know, we get that fantastic absolutely all the cards on the table from micro really that rawlins is the guy involved here mm-hmm. uh, from kandahar and that he's been working with castle and it's kind of a real sweet moment then just as literally the dash cam footage on the news shows frank sliding across the bonnet of a stolen police car mm-hmm. escaping the scene uh, where the bomb squad and the police have been called to you know and suddenly his face Frank Castle, the Punisher's profile is back in the public consciousness, back in existence. You know, he cannot hide anymore. He is the front and center. Um, you know, and I, I think the look on Lieberman's face is just priceless. It's really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting. It's like, it, it's that moment where he's just said to Madani, I've got all the information, but you're going to need Frank to prove it all. He's the one that was in the room with the rest of them. And then they look at the TV and there he is, a face uh, <laughs> wider than the 55-inch TV in the bar. So, yeah, I, what's going to happen in the next episode? Um, we, I can't wait to watch it, to be honest. We do finally have Madani and uh, a Micro working together, at least. So they're on the same side, at least. We'll just have to see how Frank gets back to them. A really good episode this time. Uh, a couple of notes about the episode? Yes, the title of the episode is the iconic uh, instructions on the front of a Claymore mine, which is front towards enemy, uh, just so that all the uh, soldiers, you know, know which way to point this mine, which is designed to spread it out, you know, from foot level upwards in a, in an arc, triangulated out. Um, mm. But yeah, uh, really, really interesting. I always thought this was a really offensive kind of uh, markings on the front of the Claymore Mines. Um, it, it always feels like they're just too dumb. They wouldn't know which way to point this. You know, it's 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 a really odd one. It's almost like, you know, don't don't point this one towards your face is kind of the the other way you could write that inscription, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's 
quite interesting. The whole point is, I suppose, Lewis is now fronting towards the enemy. He's he's setting himself up. He thinks he knows who his enemy is. Frank is now standing in between his new enemy of Lewis, who, apart from Rollins, has been the only big enemy that Frank knows about this season. So, um, so quite interesting. Uh, other note about the about the episodes. I don't know why. For the first three or four episodes, I was calling Lewis Lewis Walcott. We had an every notes, <laughs> every note over and over again from IMDb. The character was called Lewis Walcott. <laughs> I've gone back and checked, and it's been Lewis Wilson the whole time. Um, so I'm really sorry if if nobody uh, noticed that. Uh, there you go. There's another little one that we've gotten wrong. One of the notes, it was great to see Alison back in this episode, the, the head of the bulletin. I love that moment where he's got the, the letter in front of him. And like any good journalist, he's going, am I scared or am I excited about this? Well, 50-50, either way, which only makes me half a bad person. <laughs> love that moment with Alison. thought that was, that was really good fun. I love the fact that he continually pops up. He's a great editor mm-hmm. of the bulletin. Hands off his job, Karen. Hands <laughs> off his job. You need someone like Ellison by your side. Absolutely. But I think it's on to our defense with Chris not here. John, you can go first. Do you defend the ninth episode of The Punisher front towards enemy? I do defend the ninth episode of The Punisher. Um, I would give this an explosive five claymores out of five. Um, I... Absolutely was riveted by this episode. First of all, you know, even though we saw Lewis putting the, the pressure cooker bomb together, I wasn't, because he'd been out of the picture for two episodes, just to see that image at the start with Frank and Micro, um, and the bomb going off at street level, I, I thought was really affecting. I think the, the issues that, it's just it brought up with regards to internally within this series, you know, what's Karen's view on the bombings, people protecting themselves, what is Frank's view on bombings, what is Lewis's view on bombings, you know, all of these things. It brings up explicitly that discussion of gun control or no gun control and whether that representative of, of liberty or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a really touching moment of Madani with Stein, you know, still grieving for Stein and trying to prepare for Stein's funeral. What's she going to do? You know, she really does want to throw in the towel, you know, and is pulled back from the brink by, by micro reaching out to her uh, at the end where he effectively, you know, blurts everything out to her. Mm-hmm. Um, just as, you know, that moment of triumph, then we see Frank who has really been portrayed now as someone who potentially is involved with the bombings uh, you know and, and that's another aspect of his name that he's got to clear mm-hmm. I think that threesome of Lewis Curtis and Frank that moment where Frank is trying to bring Lewis down to really um, allow him to save Curtis's life and Curtis you know listening to Frank recounting the story of how he feels he let Curtis down mm-hmm. um, you know that was a really good moment where Frank really pleads to Lewis, you know, people let people down. But that doesn't mean to say that they don't care. I think Lewis's storyline is a toughie. It really is a toughie. It's real quite heavy as well. But I think it does a nice job of, of mirroring uh, and reflecting uh, and making us think about the Punisher and what he stands for, what his motives are, and, and, and the people around him, the relationships that he has with other people and how they view Frank compared to Lewis. And I think that is the 
absolute sweetness of Lewis's storyline and what it adds to um, this series, but in particular this episode. And that's why I give this five claymores out of five. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So, Derek, do you defend this episode of The Punisher? I absolutely defend this episode of The Punisher. This has one of the best moments committed to TV by Marvel uh, this year, this this moment between Lewis and Frank and um, and Curtis, as Frank almost looks like he's questioning himself because he's going, have I inspired someone that could do something like this almost in my name? Have I have I left that legacy behind me? You know, it's it's a fascinating, like brilliant moment. Some other great stuff that was going on in this episode, but just can't not defend it. I can't wait to get on to episode ten. Really looking forward to it. Uh, sorry that Chris can't be here for this episode. Uh, I was hoping that he'd be able to get his thoughts in like he did on the last episode. Uh, I don't think that's going to be possible this time. Uh, he seems to be up mountains and enjoying himself in, uh, in South Africa at the moment. Up mountains, down by the coast, and mm-hmm. getting sloshed on the finest wine that Stellenbosch can provide. <laughs> That's not given address to where he's staying, John. It's an area, it's a town, and it has lovely, lovely wine. If you want a recommendation, try a South African Pinotage. Mm, excellent, excellent. I'll have to try that myself. Definitely. Uh, I think it's time to get on to our feedback for the episode. If you want to email us in with any feedback, you can email us at feedback at defenderstvpodcast.com. We've only got a couple of episodes left of The Punisher, so if you want to send us your thoughts on the entire season, just mark it with with full season notes or something like that when you're emailing it into us. Uh, you can, of course, come over and join us on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash defenderstvpodcast, where we have uh, posts up for each of the episodes where you can discuss any of the points that you want to talk about. Absolutely. And of course, make it your New Year's resolution to send in a voicemail. Just head on over to our website at DefendersTVPodcast.com and click on the tab on the right-hand side of the screen. And you can leave up to 90 seconds of your lovely rhythmic tones uh, where you can discuss anything to do with the Punisher. So yes, your New Year's resolution, fellow Defenders, for 2018 is leave a voicemail. Absolutely. Uh, We do have some feedback for this episode. Robert Phillips sent in a note on our Facebook group, says, uh, I couldn't wait until the boys released Episode 8 podcast and then cheated to run ahead to Episode 9. It's taking a great deal of self-control to not run ahead to Episode 10 now. What an hour from the very impressive pre-credit opening to this disclosure that Frank is alive and rushing from the bomb-making cell. This is a complex episode. My dislike of Russo is growing. Karen stays consistent in her stereotypical American approach to guns being an answer when used by the good and her ambiguous relationship with vigilantes. I struggle with the way the writers have made the gun control senator seem slimy already, though I appreciate he too is confronted with the problem of guns being an answer to guns. I'm also still unsure if Frank can allow law to solve a problem that he can shoot at. Interesting thoughts there, Robert. Yeah, it's, it's a really good episode, though. As we said, we've, we've mentioned a couple of the kind of things that you're saying. Yeah. The idea of having the, the senator be a, pr- a bit of a sl- slimy guy. Um, yeah, totally understand that. I think a lot of us from the UK and Ireland probably have this opinion when we look at gun culture in America as well. It's kind of, we come from this predisposition of, well, we don't have guns. None of us have guns around us. Why would they want guns? Um, you know, this idea that, only good people can have guns, and if good people have guns, then the bad people will be kept at bay. Well, that's the police's job. You know, they're the people that are supposed to be patrolling our streets and helping us and protecting us from people with guns. Yeah, absolutely. And and police invariably are without guns, you know, but will use pepper spray or tasers to, mm-hmm. to 
do sort of non-lethal forms of, of takedown, I suppose, in that yeah. sense. Yeah. It's just really interesting how discussions can be framed depending on the context in which you live in, really, I think. And I think, yeah, seeing um, Karen and the gun control senator both seemingly sort of inconsistent in, in what they're doing to some extent. You know, it is really fascinating uh, to see. I also completely understand your pain, Robert, about not being able to run ahead. Some people weren't allowed in this line of work, Derek. <laughs> yep. That's why you get paid the big bucks, John. <laughs> yes. We are billionaires. <laughs> and just on the, uh, on the last episode, some feedback about uh, some things that we kind of got wrong or people didn't enjoy about the last episode. Uh, Salima Kisler says, I'm listening to the podcast about episode eight now. Um, regarding the bit about Frank and Sarah's age, they struck me as late thirties, early forties because of Frank's long military career and both of their established families, kids well past infancy, etc. It led me to look up John Bernthal's age and he's 41. Um, yeah, that was totally my fault, Salim. Um, <laughs> I looked up uh, Ben Barnes's age, uh, and he was 34 last year, so he is the younger of the two. Uh, my feeling was because himself and Frank were in the army at the same time that both of them had been had young careers in the army. So yes, John Bernthal is about a month older than me. Actually, he's he's 41. So that is um, hilarious. That makes a lot more sense then. Well spotted, Salim. Absolutely. I think uh, what with getting. Uh, Lewis Walcott, and then now looking up Ben Barnes instead of John Burnfall. Yeah. Age is really setting in for one of our hosts on Defenders <laughs> TV podcast. Oh, I don't mind. I don't mind. Uh, if you find anything else that I've been inconsistent about for the season, please let me know over at feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com, just like Robert Phillips did. Uh, he says, lovely job, chaps. I have to take issue with Derek O'Neill's parenting advice. Having pulled the plug on the internet and then sent Zach away, I'd say keeps the consistency of the punishment, but means Sarah doesn't have to suffer the contained rage of her son. I still stick by it, Robert, to be honest. Um, the, the idea that you can punish your child and then send them away so you don't have to suffer them whining. Like, <laughs> I, I still think that's bad parenting, personally. I think uh, pulling the plug of the internet and then sending him out to take out his rage on other kids. He's carrying a knife. She knows this, you know? You don't, don't send him out of the house. Maybe she just didn't want to get stabbed by him herself. Yeah, self-preservation. Um, absolutely. And, of course, um, Robert does go on to say, John Harrison... Please, please, please do not let us know about your moose measuring <laughs> shock horror. Yes. We won't be talking that again. We won't be talking about that again. Thanks so much for all the feedback. Great to hear from you. Uh, keep them coming in for the last couple of episodes of the season. Uh, again, if you want to follow us over on Twitter, you can follow us at DefendersCast. And please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. You can just go over to DefendersTVPodcast.com. All of the podcast catchers that you can subscribe through, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all of those are all available on the links on the front page. We'll be back next week with our review of The Punisher Episode 10, Virtue of the Vicious, on Friday the 12th of January. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, as always, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Fellow Defenders, again, another big Happy New Year and all the very best for 2018. I'm off to decide whether I'm 50% excited or 50% scared for Episode 10. <laughs> uh, as always, we will speak with you again soon. Bye. I hear a lot of people saying the blues, the blues, but I'm gonna tell you what the blues is. When you ain't got no money, you got the blues.